Faces. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am your host Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on leadership, communication, and technologies enabling disruption. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you've not done so, please click subscribe so you automatically and seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's episode. Today on the program, we have, we have a, a prolific scholar. He's a scholar. He works in organizations. He, for decades now, in fact, Jay Conger, probably one of the, my first favorite leadership books. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it up. It was Learning to Lead. And if I were able to show you the inside of this book, you would see a lot of dog earring. And I didn't even highlight. I just kind of highlighted whole chunks of text because it was, it was transformative in how I thought about leader development, which is a passion of mine. But your conceptualization of, you know, some programs are going for personal growth, conceptual understanding, skill building, feedback. It was really transformational in how I thought about leader development. So I'm so excited to, to have the opportunity to chat with you today. And we're going to, well, we started in 1992. We'll probably zoom forward to 2020. Uh, we got some ground to cover. But we do. I, I would love to hear a little bit about you and how you got into the work that you do, the consulting, the writing, because I don't know that there's another scholar. You, you probably won't admit this, but I'm struggling to think of another scholar who has worked as closely as you have with corporate America for as long as you have. I mean, you're from, from boards to, to high potentials to everything in between, senior leaders. Uh, you, you have written, the body of work is incredible. So what's been your path? How did you get into this thing called leadership? So, uh, Scott, my, my path actually begins in my childhood uh, without being Freudian. Uh, my dad had a really wonderful job. He, uh, he started out in the U.S. State Department, and he kind of climbed his way up to one day becoming the deputy chief of protocol. Okay. So this is a super job. You get paid to host parties for dignitaries. So when Nehru came down off of his plane, uh, Khrushchev came down off of his, his staircase from his airplane, all at the national airport in those days, today it's called Reagan Airport. My dad was usually the second or third person to greet them. And then he was their host for their visit in the United States. Wow. So he met every world leader uh, of the 1960s, 70s, and really 80s and 90s. He would come home and tell stories about these characters. And most of them were characters. And I, and I also learned that some of them were definitely not leaders, <laughs> uh, that you could have the title, but actually not be an effective leader. And of course, some were on our side and some were on the other side. And so at an early age, I would have been eight or nine or 10 at, at the most. Um, I said, I want to be a leader. Now, I didn't really have any idea what that meant, but I decided to run for school office. 
Nice. And uh, by good fortune, I got elected. <laughs> now, it's a little bit like that saying, you know, dogs like to chase speeding cars. And the only problem is they actually catch the car. They're not sure what to do with it. <laughs> so that kind of happened to me. It's like, all right, well, now what do I do as president of my class, you know, other than, you know, maybe host a few events. Yeah. Um, but I think by that age, I really thought I was going to be uh, a U.S. senator or uh, a governor. That was my ambition. And so I got very involved in school leadership positions. And then I got extremely involved in politics. I ran campaigns. I had the largest youth organization for president uh, for their election. And I, got, I held kind of statewide offices uh, in, the in one of the national parties. But by my early 20s, I had grown very disillusioned because I saw that a lot of politics was really about the pleasure of power. Wow. And that there was really the shadow side that we all know about, that I really went in to change the world. I had kind of pure intentions, and I didn't realize that you also needed to be a rugby player. Yeah. I mean, you really had to be thinking about how do you take out your opponent. And I didn't like that. I didn't enjoy that. Uh, so by my early 20s, I, had, I decided I wasn't going to go into politics, which, which created a problem because that was my aspiration. And uh, by chance, I thought I would go to law school, become a lawyer. So I went to the University of Virginia's law school to listen to a few classes. I was from the state of Virginia. And they just built a new business school across the plaza, like about 100 yards away. I had sat in on three hours of law classes, and I thought, oh, this, this is not me. <laughs> so I was closing another career door all at once. Wow. And I went to uh, the University of Virginia's business school just to check it out, and I ended up getting an MBA because I, I was very excited by the programs, and I loved a lot of the things related to consumer behavior. But I took a course there called Group Dynamics. Oh, wow. And that course was so powerful. It was a life-changing course. And I decided that one day I wanted to teach and I wanted to teach this subject called organizational behavior. Wow. I would go and work as a, I would run international marketing for, at the time, the largest solar cell company in the world. Okay. So I, I was actually a practicing manager and I, I learned kind of firsthand how hard it is to lead. Uh, there are a lot of challenges. <laughs> You know, I, I, I could see some of that in my earlier career, but uh, I realized how hard it was to, to lead people. And around the fifth year, I decided, you know, my calling is to be a teacher. So I went back and got a, a doctorate and then began my teaching career. But yeah. I've always loved leadership. and I've always been fascinated how you and I can be influential. Going to business school, especially after some of the experiences you'd had and taking that course, and I, I think you said it was called Organizational Dynamics, that had to have been so powerful and so eye-opening. After everything you'd experienced that had happened to you, whether that was in politics, and then to make sense of some of that and to start learning about concepts around power and influence, that had to be transformational. Yes, and I really picked up this idea that um, psychology was very, very important. And, you, and I began to, um, I had never taken a psychology course. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit of a paradox. I'm in a psychology department, but <laughs> I'm the only person without a single undergraduate psychology course. <laughs> yeah, it really gave me a deep appreciation for being perceptive 
and seeing behind what you're presented with in an interpersonal situation. There's so much more complexity that we don't see. Yeah. Well, and there's always been, at least, Jay, the majority of what I've read, it seems to me that even maybe some of your experience as a practicing manager would have really helped inform some of your future work because at least your work that I've read that I know well, it's it's practitioner focused. It's it's that tends to be at least from the books, that tends to be the setting, and it's so incredibly helpful because there's this beautiful balance of that theory and and the practice. Would you agree that that's been somewhat of your your area of focus? So I really have two streams. The academic stream is around charismatic leadership, and I spent a little more than a decade doing much more traditional true academic research around what is charisma. And then with a, a very good friend and colleague, Robbie Kaningo, we created a scale, charismatic leadership scale. Yep. And um, that scale and one other are kind of the two dominant scales that are used today to measure somebody's, whether they're a charismatic leader or not. Yeah. But early on, and it's interesting you referenced learning to lead, right after I was tenured, I said, I want to do something that's more grounded in, in the world of practice. Yeah. And so that book was the beginning of my practitioner focus. Wow. I had already established myself kind of as an academic yeah. and with academic research. And a lot of it goes back to my origins as also an anthropology major, where I originally thought of becoming a professor of anthropology. And as you know, up until recently, almost all anthropology is field-based research. Yeah. And that's what I love. I love mm. to do field-based research. And so that side of me has always informed the practice side. And while I love my academic community, I feel that much of the time our work, which is very insightful, gets trapped yeah. in academic journals. And it yep. doesn't migrate out into the world. Yep. And so I've after getting tenure, I said, you know, I'm on a mission. I'm, I'm going to kind of release. <laughs> and I, I learned early on you, you had to use different language and you had to structure your thinking in different ways to reach a larger practitioner audience. Yeah. So I've, I've always thought of myself as attempting to bridge. Yep. And again, it's because I feel that the practitioner world doesn't understand how many insights that you and I are able to create that are really wonderful but they don't migrate. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more that, that a lot of that work, it stays, it stays in a certain place. And I think that's unfortunate. I had a really fun conversation with John Dugan. I don't know if you've ever come across John. He's at the Aspen Institute. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he's doing some really incredible work around bridging those two worlds as well, right? Using all of the scholarship that, that, he was at the University of Maryland and all of that work, but then now actually putting that into practice and fascinating conversation that we had. And I learned a lot in that conversation, but I couldn't agree with you more. There's so many wonderful insights, but because it hasn't been translated or it hasn't been, I don't know, even if like to your point, the language hasn't changed so that it's comprehensible. <laughs> you know, what average CEO picks up the Academy of Management Journal and says, well, wow, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's very true. And then 
I sit at the, when I graduated from my, you know, doctoral program, that was the beginning of the end, of the qualitative era of organizational behavior. Huh. So I kind of saw the tail end and when you would actually read books as part of your doctoral program. Yeah. And you had people like March, uh, James Marsh, and then you had Paul Lawrence, who had written seminal books. Um, and today, that era is is pretty much gone. I mean, it, increasingly, you you read seminal, you know, Academy of Management journal articles. Yes. And then it was also the beginning, in a heavy way, of the arrival of quantitative methodologies, where regression analysis started to take over the field. Yep. So I again, I was able to sit in that kind of crossroad. And began to appreciate the fact that quanti- uh, quantitative methodologies were less appealing to a practitioner audience. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's fast forward a little bit to your most recent work, and I know that a number of of listeners will be very very interested in this topic of of high potentials. So let's let's start with where the focus on high potentials uh, came from. Your latest work. When I was um, at a place called the London Business School. And increasingly, the people I was seeing in my classrooms were these pool of people who had been designated in their corporation as high potential talent. And, you know, that can, at the lower end of the, of the pyramid, that can be 15% of the population. But as you get to the top, it shrinks to 2 or 3%. Yeah. So these are people who have been designated as very special. They get so many opportunities that their peers don't get. So because I was teaching so many of them, I became really intrigued by what, what sets these people apart? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How do you get that designation? Why this and person? Then, Why were they tapped? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it generated a lot of curiosity in my mind. And then my good friend, Doug Reddy, he approached me and Linda Hill, who's at the Harvard Business School, if we would have an interest in looking at high potential talent in a couple dozen companies mm. and try to figure out what how they get into that designation. Uh, we wrote a Harvard Business Review article. Yeah. Said, Are you a high potential? Yep. And a book agent reached out to me and said, Jay, would you ever write a book on that? And I kind of turned her down because I had too much at the time to work on. And then about a year and a half later, I said, that's a great idea. So a good friend of mine, Alan Church, who, who oversees high potential assessments and talent at PepsiCo, I reached out to him because I like to partner on books. And he said uh, he'd help me. We'd work together. Yeah. What we were trying to do is answer the question of what keeps somebody in that designation over a career? And then how do you, how do you initially get in, but then also how do you fall out? Yeah. In most companies today, it's, they try to be dynamic. So you might be a high potential for five years and then fall out by your sixth year. <laughs> well, and I, and I loved that your description of th- there's, you know, two different general schools of thought. Do we let folks know that they're a high potential or, or do we kind of keep that? And I, and I believe it was, was it 60 upwards of 60% of corporations don't tell the individuals that they're high potentials, but in the book, you do a great job of saying, here's how you might know if you are kind of one, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's got, it's fairly obvious, you know, you'll, you'll notice you've been invited to a breakfast with the CEO and, <laughs> and your good friend, Mary was not. <laughs> yeah. And you're thinking, well, why me? Well, somebody has already anointed you or you'll be invited to an executive program. 
Yeah. And, you know, you'll notice that Jack was not, Juan was not. So, yeah, this, but yes, it's a, it's a really age old dilemma since mm. that categorization came about. Do we tell them or not? Yeah. Well, and in the book, you, you identify these five X factors. And so maybe we could start by just talking about a, a couple of them. I loved this first one, the, the situation sensing. Would you talk a little bit about that? That these, that these high potentials, they, they excelled at this concept of situation sensing. Yeah, so situation sensing really is your ability to be very observant and read your boss quickly. Yeah. In the early days of your career, the boss is the keystone decision maker. Yep. There are fewer data points and your boss, you know, at the beginning of your career, you tend to work more visibly with your boss. As you become more and more senior, you might actually be located physically away from the boss. You're off often in the field. Your boss might be traveling the globe. But in the early days of your career, they, they are the single best vantage point of Scott's potential. Yeah. So they get an enormous amount of weight in that decision. So what we, what we found was that the people who got into the pool really understood their boss, but yeah. they understood them around two core dimensions. So they understood that their boss was probably like them going to be promoted on two or three things that they accomplished. Ah. So there are a lot of other things that the boss had to do, just like you and I. There's a lot of administrative work and routine tasks. There are going to be two or three high visibility projects that the boss will be assessed on. So the subordinate, i.e. the potentially high potential, yep. <laughs> makes certain they contribute in a significant way to those two or three outcomes. Yeah. And the more you're a major contributor to your boss's success around those small number of priorities, the more likely the boss will attribute tremendous potential to you. The other dimension is stylistic imperatives. And this is, a, this is kind of fun, but it's also kind of disheartening. The mirroring concept, is that where you're yes. headed? Okay, yeah, 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 so it's you, interesting, right? It's, and it's very important. Bosses have a couple stylistic imperatives, which they may not articulate to you. So one of the things, if you've seen the Iger book, the CEO of Disney, in that book, he talks about always arriving five minutes early to every meeting. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so can you imagine if you arrive two minutes early yeah. to every meeting? <laughs> yeah. It's all, all these clues that, that, again, that situation sensing, all these clues, are you paying, whether that's in some cases for right or wrong, dress, <laughs> communication style, speed at which we're communicating. I imagine yeah. all of those were ingredients that, that, that came across. Oh, and even silly things like fonts. Wow. Did you use, did you use Times New Roman? <laughs> you know, and by the way, they haven't told you to use Times. They kind yeah. of figured, they figured you'd look at their font and get it. And then one of my favorites was this, um, and this is a pretty, very senior person who would text you. And his expectations is you would respond in 15 minutes to every text. So you could be having dinner at home with your family and the text comes through. And Scott, if you don't respond in 15 minutes, he's already said you're a bit of a slacker. Yeah, and, uh, you, and, you, and you're, you're psychologically a little bit out, right? You're going to yes. have to dig out from that, that hole, so to speak, right? And wow. here's, here's the kind of the, the downside is it really is this principle of first impressions become lasting impressions. So in the first 30 to 90 days, 
your new boss has already assessed you on, you know, are you meeting my style imperatives? You mirror me. And then uh, what's, what, how will this person contribute to my designation of being high, high potential talent? Yeah. And especially to your, to your point, those really high profile projects that are going to help them move forward. I think the, the, the terminology that unexpected and exceptional initiative in those couple areas that help them achieve and advance and move forward as well, right? Yeah. And so one of my favorite stories is a young man in India who he demonstrated exceptional initiative. He was invited to the U.S. He worked for a Swiss medical products company and he ran sales and marketing for India, which was one of their, uh, they were trying to grow in India but there were some headwinds. Um, so we went to a conference in New York City where they brought all the sales and marketing people from around the globe, a couple hundred people. But he was unusual. The conference lasted two days and everybody else went home. He stayed for five more days. Uh-huh. Now, was it to sightsee? Check out the Statue of Liberty, go to the <laughs> Metropolitan, watch a Yankees game? No. no. <laughs> he had heard that the New York sales force was one of the best in the world. And so every morning he would go on sales calls with the salesman Wow! and he would take copious notes and he found out who was the best sale, you know, who are the top salespeople. And he made certain to go on sales calls with them and he watched them. He interviewed them five days in. He's got this incredible notebook full of, full of information on the flight back to, to Delhi. You know, it's a good 20 hours or so. Yeah. He synthesized everything. And like a good high potential leader, when he arrived back in Delhi, he didn't say, here's what I want all of you to do, because this is what I've learned from the Americans. He said, I, I, here are some insights I've gleaned, and here's some thoughts and, and potential plans. What do you think? Huh. And so then he engaged them around how they could really transform the sales and marketing in India. And it worked. I mean, a year later, they were like a hockey stick in terms of performance. But again, nobody asked him to stay for five days. Nobody said, hey, why don't you hang out with the sales force? He just had this extra level initiative. Mm -hmm. Well, and it it almost, at least a part of that story brings me to, and and we'll, we'll leave everybody in suspense. We won't get to every X factor. But this next one of talent accelerating, what I loved about that is that as I'm reading it, as I'm understanding it, Jay, it's about developing others. It's about accelerating the talent on your team. And so uh, your story right there even made me think of intellectual stimulation from transformational leadership yeah. of he comes back, he puts some content at, at the teams, puts it on the table and then says, what do you all think? Let's create this and let's build and go. And in that process, he's probably starting to engage in this talent accelerating as well. Would you agree? Very much so, and that was one of one of um, that's why he he matched across all five X factors actually. Wow. But that story illustrates particularly that first one and this idea of catalytic learning. But yes, the very focused on they understand that their potential is tied up in the potential of their team. Yeah, and that it's only through elevating the potential of their team that they will elevate their own potential. And I'm always reminded of Martin Luther King, who wrote at one point, I had no idea who I could become. It was my followers who saw my potential. And they were the ones who lifted me up and encouraged me to do what I I do. Hmm. 
And I think in some ways that powerful story illustrates what's happening with high potential talent. They kind of get in the fast track because they're doers. Yeah. But at a certain point, they realize they can't do it all themselves, that actually that leads to micromanaging and really hyper control, which yeah. disempowers people. And so they learn within really the first decade, this idea of accelerating their, their own, the talent of their own people. But it's not all kind of Pollyanna that these these individuals are also they're holding people accountable and it's there's there's high expectations, right? And and Scott, one of the I think most challenging things for leaders in organizations to do is hold people accountable mm. and have difficult conversations. Yep. To get around, you know, we call them C players, but you're your people problems or your poor performers. And what we're impressed is vast majority of high potential leaders, if they're going to persist over a career, bravely go where no one goes. They bravely go and confront and in constructive ways. Yeah. They realize that if they allow poor performers or bad behavior, it undermines their credibility as a leader. And so they tend to be extremely attentive to that. Whereas I think for most of us, we really like to be liked. We really want to get along with people and we don't want people to dislike us. So we tend to put that off. Yep. But that also then demotivates your other A players, right? If if you're letting these C players kind of rumble around and, and they're not being held accountable, it's damaging. It's toxic to the culture. Wouldn't you agree? Very much so. And you and I have probably worked in a couple of those situations. (laughs) (laughs) well we will leave there's there's five we will leave the other three for for folks to go and explore on their own but were there any other insights that as you wrote this book just really stand out for you as you reflect Yes. You know what I most love about them uh, is that they were constantly focused on their development. Uh, uh, the best of them were never completely satisfied. Yeah, uh, They remind me of world-class athletes who always have this sense that I, I could do better at this and I could be better at, at this. The best of them never lost kind of a grounding of humility. Now, also the other thing that we know a lot about, and it, I'm sure it describes both of us, is that high achievers have a basic insecurity, Mm. which is, (laughs) you remember the term, the imposter syndrome? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm not as good as people think I am. And I hope they don't discover that. (laughs) (laughs) They have a lot of that, but they're able to turn it into a very constructive outlet Mm. where they're constantly figuring out, okay, I I need to grow in this area. I need to hone my skills. It's very appealing. And I know when I was doing the field work with this, I constantly go back and ask myself, all right, where do I need to push myself? Wow. Where, where am I not? Where am I satisfied? And I need to really get out of that mindset. So for me, that was very inspiring. The, mm. uh, the kind of continual quest to be their best. Yeah. I, I, I think it was maybe in the expertise literature that I came across something that suggested that most humans get to a place where they're competent in their role. And then to your point, they plateau. They, they don't spend necessarily decades working on skills outside of their current ability level. And whether it was Anders Ericsson or others, it was a fairly consistent finding that these individuals constantly kept 
the the next level in mind. And it's fun to know that that's something you found here, right? Yes. It reminded me of Yashka Heifetz, who's the great violinist, who said, uh, I don't practice for one day. I know I'm no longer one of the world's great violinists. If I don't practice for two days, my wife knows that I am not no longer one of the great violinists. And if I don't practice for three days, the whole world knows it. And, and it's, it's kind of relentless. You know, I've got to keep being my best. Yeah. Well, what, one, one other thought. One other thought that comes to mind for you or insight from, from writing the book. Well, I think, you know, again, it's really interesting because I'm, when I was at London Business School, I, did, I literally taught thousands and thousands of managers. And one of the paradoxes is that very few people are very effective at coaching. Hmm. And very few organizations spend money to teach their managers how to coach. And yeah. yet it's one of the most important activities of a good leader. Yeah. And so what I was impressed by is how many of these individuals, either through bosses or through their own initiative, learned how to be coaches. Hmm. And it, we go back to that second dimension you asked me about, talent accelerating. Yeah. And that foundational skill allowed them to do that well. Hmm. The other thing is I always think of coaching in two kind of buckets. There's the expertise coaching where you just have far more experience and expertise and you give advice. Yeah. And that's how 90% of managers think about coaching, which is advice giving. It's not joint problem solving. It's the boss telling you how to solve the problem. Yeah. What many of the high potentials, not all, but certainly a large number had more what I call developmental coaching, which is let's figure out how you with my help and my resources can come to a solution that helps you grow and develop and you own. Yep. I was very impressed by how many of them were really strong at coaching. Hmm. And it, it reminded me also, and by the way, I would often ask them, you know, were you a natural coach in school? You know, were you coaching your fellow teammates on the football team? And almost to a person, they said no, that all those oh. skills they had learned in their work career. Wow. So, it didn't, it didn't appear to be a disposition. It appeared to be something they really acquired and became very appreciative of as a skill set. Well, and, and Jay, what are you working on next? What's, what's something that's hot on the burner that you're excited about? Because I imagine there's a deep pipeline at work. <laughs> <laughs> Probably too deep. <laughs> Probably too broad, actually. i got too many pipelines. I'm going back to a subject which I wrote about in the late 90s, Persuasion. Ah. I, I've always been really interested uh, in communications. Mm -hmm. And the work I did on charismatic leadership, one of the large components was the ability to communicate and inspirationally. Yeah. And uh, by the way, charismatic leaders are world class of persuasion. Mm. So I wrote a book called Winning Him Over, and then I wrote a Harvard Business Review article called The Necessary Art of Persuasion. I just keep seeing that nobody's working on that subject. People have a kind of negative association with it. They think of it as manipulation. Mm -hmm. And yet most of what a person does in their workday is persuade their colleagues. Yep. So I'm looking at very constructive forms of persuasion as deployed by change agents and innovation agents in organizations. So how you can make things happen, how you can make an adaptive organization through the power of your words. Any early insights, when, especially when you look back at the work that you did then, does it hold? Or are there, I, I imagine there's contextual shifts that you're, you're coming across. Anything stand out? 
that you can share? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to give it away. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean, I think one of the great myths of persuasion that a lot of people stumble on is they assume it's this very well rehearsed uh, pitch. Mm. And there are a few unusual places where it is, but they're relatively few. And if you go into persuading your colleagues with a monologue, the odds are nine times out of 10, you're going to fail. Wow. You really have to go in and see it as a set of dialogues you're going to hold with your colleagues over a period of time. Okay. And so most people have these um, stereotypes of persuasion that actually harm their ability to be influential. The other thing is because of these kind of stereotypes, they tend to grossly underprepare. Uh, you need a, a framework to think about preparing. The analogy would be as if you um, had a, you know, you're growing a, a tree in your backyard and the leaves turned yellow and you said to yourself, well, the secret here is just remove all the yellow leaves. <laughs> that's, that's all I need to do. It'll look great. Well, that's how a lot of people approach persuasion. Yeah. Well, I love and, what you're saying. I love, I love the mindset comment there that it's going to be a series of dialogues because I think another another thing, and, and I, maybe I'm just repeating what you just said, I think I for sure have had this mindset that I just need to have the conversation once, and then when it doesn't go well, well, I can walk away, and it's real easy to blame them. But to your point, it probably wasn't well-crafted, it wasn't well-designed, I didn't view it as a series of dialogues, and you know, I could have been better. I, I think at times people whether it's a subordinate trying to influence their, their, their peers or their superior, I think a lot of them are not designed well and they expect that it's going to be a one-time conversation. And then when they don't get their way, their mindset goes south, right? That, you're, you're spot on, Scott. You're spot yeah. on. And so they, because of that, you know, they give up too early. But they also don't do enough homework usually. Ah. And one of my favorite stories is the minivan. There was a young man at General Motors who actually came up with the idea for the minivan. He was inspired by the Volkswagen camper. And he said, I wonder if we could turn that into a, a, a car, yeah. you know, where people could pile their kids and their softball and, you know, the badminton net and go off. And uh, he went to see the head designer at GM. And because he wasn't very effective as a persuader and champion, the idea was killed in that one meeting, yeah. just like you said. But there was another man named Fergus Pollock who was uh, in his middle 30s, and he worked at Chrysler. And paradoxically, he too was inspired by the VW camper. Yeah. But he was a much more savvy agent of change. And he did his homework, and he held his first meeting with the president of Chrysler, not wow. the head designer. And he had done a lot of work on demographics, on why this was a really powerful idea. And at the end of that meeting, the president said, let's, let's see if Lee Iacocca is available and let's talk to him about your idea. Wow. And later that day, they got in. They, uh, Iacocca had a cancellation in his schedule. <laughs> so they went in. And at the end of the meeting, uh, Lee looked at Ferguson. He said, look, I'm going to give you, and it was in the tens of millions of dollars, but I'm going to steal it from my one most profitable division. So you better be right. Wow. I'm going to make the bet on you. And the minivan was the most profitable car category for almost two decades. And it saved Chrysler. Well, we've so, got a Chrysler Pacifica literally above me right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the product of an effective persuader. Yeah. But yeah. General Motors could have had that. They actually had the idea for, there's another story at Intel. You had an engineer, young engineer who had the idea for the personal computer. Wow. But he couldn't persuade anybody. 
And so, you know, Apple um, ended up, and same as Xerox, as you know, Xerox Park had the mm. mouse and all those things, but they couldn't persuade the folks at corporate yeah. to, to turn it into a viable product. So persuasion is really one of the trademarks of great change agents. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. Well, Jay, I always close this out with a little bit of a lightning round. And okay. I'm ready. <laughs> your, your colleagues, well, I'm not going to go into what they've been reading and watching, but it's kind of all across the board. It's, uh, it's Scandinavian noir and it's Ozark. Yeah, so, so you've got a wide range. But uh, what have you been reading, streaming, or listening to that stood out for you lately? And it could have to do with leadership, but doesn't have to. Yeah, so uh, one book that I'm currently reading that I really like, it's called Entangled Life. Okay. And it's by a scientist who looks at the role of fungus in our lives. And that's why it's entangled, because fungus is literally entangled in, in all of us and in all of life. Wow. And he's a really wonderful writer, and you learn about truffles, and you learn about fungus that are the size of football fields. And you learn about lichens. And, but it, it's really this global view on the essential role that mushrooms and fungus play in our world that we completely codependent on them. Which I would um, have no clue that that's even a thing. That's fascinating. Yeah. And his, I love his name. His name is Merlin Sheldrake, <laughs> which I'm convinced is a stage name. <laughs> you know, Merlin Sheldrake. All right, come on. Of course he's into fungi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, another one that I really love that I finished recently, that more of a leadership book, is Rubicon, which is uh, by Tom Holland, and it's the final days of the Roman Republic. Oh, and it, wow. It chronicles how the Republic collapsed. And it's okay. very, very compelling. It's, it's, it's a really great read. It's all about leadership and the failure of leadership, and it's all about the dark side, all about politics and people manipulating and stabbing one another back. It's a great book. Literally. And then for fun, I just finished a great book called Atomic Habits, okay. which from our standpoint, is leadership development, people, it looks, it's probably the best book on uh, habits, how you need to think about changing your habits. So it's a very pragmatic guide. Okay. It's a great book. Atomic um, Habits. Atomic Habits. Okay. Streaming. Uh, my wife and I finished Game of Thrones recently that we loved. <laughs> Speaking of politics and backstabbing. And <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> and we, we, we fought not to see that. We, you know, because everybody said, oh, have you seen Game of Thrones? So we said, no, 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 we don't want to watch it. And then we started watching and we said, this is, this is really special. Yeah. Uh, we did start Ozark. Yep. Uh, it's a little too noir for me, but it's certainly. <laughs> well, Jason Bateman, I mean, he, well, and, and Laura Linney, they, they deserve award after award. I mean, they are so yeah. good Amazing. at being bad. <laughs> Aren't they? Oh my gosh. It's yeah. incredible. Well, Jay, you are episode 25. I told you that before we started. I, I can't think of a, a better way to celebrate episode 25. I so appreciate your work. Uh, yeah, at least this guy, your work has informed my work, how I think about what our work is. And I'm so appreciative of that. And as I said, when we were starting, that body of work is just absolutely incredible. It's, it's second to none, in my opinion. And so thanks for the work that you do. Excited to read everything that's coming down the pike. For those who are listening, I think you need to go ahead and buy the high potential advantage. There's three others. If you want to 
if you want to make that happen, uh, it's a great guide and it's great insight into how to orient your career. So Jay, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Scott. My pleasure. <laughs> so after reflecting on my conversation with Jay, it's, it's just a lot of fun to have a conversation with someone who is so passionate about helping others succeed in very, very difficult roles. Uh, leadership, leading others, organizational life, incredibly difficult work. Uh, whether it's his early writings, 1992, Learning to Lead, or his most recent work, The High Potentials Advantage, uh, he has dedicated his career in many ways to helping people be more successful in doing that work. And for that, I appreciate you, Jay. Thank you very, very much. It's had a great impact on how I think about this topic, and I know that it's had an impact on tens of thousands of other people out there doing the work. So this was episode 25, 25 episodes. We've had over 5,500 downloads in the last six months. I've had incredible conversations, met some wonderful people along the way, rekindled some relationships with people, and I'm just so very, very thankful that you're listening right now. Thank you. And if you find this useful, share it with others. Uh, help spread the word, and we can continue to learn together and make a difference. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.